Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. And so far, we've seen the first group of four disciples who were part of the 12. And now we turn to the second group of four. Their names are found in the first part of verse 3. It says, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. Now, you may be wondering why we're taking so much time to go through each one of these men in this list. Uh, I've told you before, but let me explain again my reasoning. First, remember who these guys are. Uh, Eleven of them are selected to be the foundation of the church, and one was chosen because by his betrayal of Jesus, he would accomplish God's sovereign purposes in the sacrifice of his son for sinners. So they're very special men, and yet most of them are often ignored or overlooked. Second, I decided to study each one because I seriously doubt that most of you have ever done such a study. Unless you've read John MacArthur's book, Twelve Ordinary Men, uh, I doubt most of you have ever studied the lives of all the disciples. Uh, you may have studied about Peter or John or Judas, uh, but beyond those three, most of the other disciples are largely ignored. Uh, so I decided I wanted to give you an overview of each of these men. So if you're sitting there thinking that I've gotten bogged down in the weeds of the text and that I really should move on, let me remind you that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and that includes the list of the disciples and as well as those genealogies in the Bible. Um, we mustn't overlook them as being unimportant. Now, as you know, we live in a very qualification-conscious society. There are qualifications for just about everything. Life is made up of qualifying. Uh, if you want to buy a house, you have to qualify. If you want to buy a car, you have to qualify. If you want to get a credit card, you have to qualify. And when you want to apply for a job, you have to qualify. When you want to be trained for something, you have to qualify. When you want to join a team, you have to qualify. Uh, it seems like everything you do requires some degree of qualifications. Someone establishes standards that you have to meet. Society has determined it's only going to use qualified people. Now, what qualifications does God have? What does God require of those who serve him? What kind of people does Jesus use in his ministry? What kind of people does it take to advance his eternal kingdom? Well, the answer is that, frankly, no one is qualified. Nobody. Uh, therefore, God has chosen to use the unqualified to do the impossible. Uh, that's essentially how God works. He takes the unqualified and he makes them qualified. Uh, does that make you feel better? It does me. <laughs> does me. God uses unqualified people moves into their lives with saving, sanctifying grace, and transforms them into usefulness. And that's what Jesus did with the apostles. When many people think of the 12 apostles because of their religious upbringing of some type, they may think of them as Saint so-and-so, and they picture some guy in a stained glass window. Uh, they think of them as men without faults, men who manifest none of the failures of humanness that beset us. But when people think that, they're wrong because these guys were guys just like us. Uh, yes, they were specially called, specially transformed, specially trained, specially sent out by Christ, but they were people just like us. 
Now, as we said before, they're divided into three groups of four. Uh, the four different lists of the, in the Bible of the twelve, each time the same four names appear in each group. Uh, the first four were closest to Jesus, and the next four are the second uh, next closest. And finally, the last group is the least intimate with Christ, but they're all there. They all had a marvelous, effective ministry, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus and became known as the son of perdition, as Jesus calls him in John 17, 12. So not all of them had the same level of intimacy with Christ. Not all of them had the same gifts and talents and ministries, and yet they all preached, they all proclaimed, and they all advanced the kingdom. They all carried the message, and they're all very special, unique, individual people. So let's begin looking at the second group of disciples, and we will begin with Philip. Uh, first of all, let me just clarify that you must not confuse Philip the disciple with Philip the deacon in Acts 6, who became an evangelist and led the Ethiopian eunuch to faith in Christ. Those are two different men. Okay. Now his name always appears first in his group in each of the lists of the disciples, which indicates that he was considered the leader of this second group. Now Philip is a Greek name. Now since all 12 disciples were Jews, he must have had a Jewish name, but we don't know what that was. Many of the disciples used both Greek and Jewish names, which was a common practice in those days. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, Philip always goes by his Greek name, which, by the way, means lover of horses. Uh, it isn't likely that he loved horses and adopted that name at some point in his life. It's far more likely that he was named after the great Greek king Philip II of Macedon, uh, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Uh, it's possible that Philip was raised in a Hellenistic Jewish family. Uh, there were many such Jews because after Alexander the Great conquered all of the Middle East, the Greek language and culture and customs were adopted by many people throughout that area. And if that was the case, Philip would have been fluent in Greek. And there's good reason to think that because in John 12, when a certain group of Greeks asked to see Jesus, it was Philip they approached first. Why? probably because he had a Greek name and spoke their language fluently. Uh, it would have been a natural point of connection. Philip's hometown was Bethsaida, uh, up in the northern part of Galilee where Peter and Andrew also lived. Now, being that all of those towns were small, uh, I'm sure that Philip knew uh, Andrew, Peter, uh, Bartholomew, they probably all knew each other. Uh, they were all God-fearing Jews. And so in the 12, there, there's a lot of these familial uh, and relationships and friendship relationships that were present. Now, he may have been a commercial fisherman. We aren't told that, but the fact that he lived in Bethsaida on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, where the primary industry was fishing, may indicate that his occupation was a fisherman. And in John 21, after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples went back to Galilee and were told that Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two unnamed disciples were together. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the others all said, we'll also come with you. 
And, and those two unnamed disciples were probably Andrew and Philip. Uh, since they're always mentioned with the others in that group, and since we know Andrew was a commercial fisherman, it seems likely that Philip was also. Now, you won't find Philip mentioned in any of the synoptic Gospels, except in the list of the disciples. But John's Gospel mentions him four times, and we really get to know him in these four passages. So let's look at John chapter 1 and verse 43, and we will meet Philip for the first time. Verse 43 says, The next day, that's the day following when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew heard that and went out and got Peter, and Peter had his first encounter with Jesus. So the next day, uh, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now that is the first direct call of a disciple. Uh, Peter and Andrew had already met Jesus when he had been pointed out to them and they began following him. But Philip is the first individual to whom the Lord expressly said, follow me. But Philip also had a seeking heart. How do I know that? Because if you look at verse 45, it says Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Do you notice that Philip says, we have found him? From Jesus' viewpoint, he found Philip. From Philip's viewpoint, he found the Messiah. And isn't that the way our own testimony comes out most of the time? From God's side, he sovereignly chose and called you. From your human side, you found Christ. Uh, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jeremiah 29.13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So Philip was seeking the truth. And in verse 45, it says, he says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. In other words, he must have been studying the law and the prophets, searching the scriptures to learn about the coming Messiah. And now he says, we have found him. And he's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip's spiritual eyes and ears were open. His heart was open. And when he heard that divine voice say, follow me, he ran to tell Nathanael that he'd found him, that the Messiah was here. And when Nathanael expressed doubt, he even wanted to take him to Jesus. The end of verse 46 says, Philip said to him, come and see. In other words, come and find out for yourself. So what do we learn about Philip? Well, first of all, we learn that he was seeking the Messiah. He was a God-fearing Jew. He was religious. He had an honest heart. Second, we see that his first response to finding Jesus was to find someone else. One of the certain marks of, of genuine conversion is the desire to tell others of the Savior. And he usually does it uh, with friends and family. Close relationships provide the most fertile soil for evangelism because it's already a relationship of love and affection. And into that relationship, you can introduce the reality of Christ. Of course, that doesn't guarantee that your friends and family will receive Christ. In fact, very often, Christ becomes a barrier and causes fractions in relationships. But many times, interpersonal relationships 
are the means which God uses to draw others to saving faith in Christ. Just think about yourself. Many of you came to saving faith because a friend or family member shared Christ with you or encouraged you to read the Bible or gave you a book to read that shared the gospel. How many of you can say that's true of me? Nobody? Nobody? No, no friends or family should? I don't see any. Okay, there's some hands now. Okay. No. Okay. Um, yeah, so interpersonal relationships are usually the means by which people hear the gospel and come to faith in Jesus Christ. So Philip immediately went to Nathaniel to tell him about finding the Messiah. He had a heart of an evangelist as well as a seeking heart. And by the way, he went to Nathaniel because Nathaniel apparently was his good friend. Uh, Nathaniel is also known as Bartholomew. And you'll always find these two guys listed next to each other in every list of the disciples. So they're probably very close friends. Some people think they were brothers, but there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that. Uh, they, we are specifically told that Peter and Andrew were brothers, as were James and John. There's nothing that says that Philip and Nathaniel were brothers. So rather than reading into the text, we can only say that they were obviously very good and close friends. Now let's look, move along to John 6 and see the next passage about him. Yes. But it's not him. How do, where do we find that in scripture? Well, it was so many years later, and he'd already been martyred. <laughs> yeah. Long time later. Okay. It's all the same for us. John 6. I think this really opens up Philip's personality for us. From what we've seen so far, we know he's seeking the Messiah. We know he wanted others, specifically his good friend Nathaniel, to know that the Messiah had come and they had found him. But now we're going to find out some more details about him. Now at this point, Jesus has already turned water into wine at the marriage feast at Cana, thereby demonstrating his supernatural power. And he's already healed a royal official son in Capernaum. He's healed a man by the pool in Bethsaida. So Jesus has already shown that he has supernatural power from God to perform miracles. And so now we come to chapter 6, and a big crowd is gathered on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus has been teaching them all day, healing them of all their diseases. It's a, been a tremendous day, but now it's getting close to evening time. The crowd is hungry. We're told that there were 5,000 men present, which means that with women and children, there were probably twelve to 15,000 people, perhaps even 20,000. Uh, so it's a huge crowd. Look what happens in John chapter 6, verse 5. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these may eat? Now the question that ought to jump out at you is, why did he single out Philip? Well, Philip was probably the guy in charge of logistics for Jesus and the disciples. 
Uh, he would have been the guy who figured out how much food they needed for the group, where to buy it when they got where they were going, and so forth. We know Judas was the keeper of the money, but someone had to be in charge of making arrangements to buy food and taking care of that sort of thing. It's kind of like here at church. Uh, Mike Arbia is our facilities manager who oversees our day-to-day -day maintenance and sees that repairs and supplies that are needed are obtained and taken care of. But Josh Jowers is the man who controls the finances. And they work together along with Joe Trofelmuck, our administrative pastor, to get all of that done. So most likely, Philip was the guy who usually arranged to obtain food and supplies for Jesus and the disciples as they traveled. But the Lord had a special reason for asking Philip the question of where they were going to buy food for this huge crowd. Look at verse 6. This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus knew he was going to feed them miraculously and create massive amounts of bread and fish from a boy's small lunch. But he's testing Philip. It's as though he's saying, now, Philip, you've seen me make large jugs of wine at a marriage feast. But now we don't have any food for this multitude. So how are we going to get some food? And look at what Philip says. Verse 7. Philip answered him. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. He instantly gives Jesus an answer, which proves that he's already analyzed it and figured it out. He's calculated that if they could get 200 denarii together, whether by collecting an offering from the crowd or taking money out of the disciples' money bag and buy bread with it, it wouldn't be enough to feed the crowd. You see, a denarii was the equivalent of a day's wage for a common man in those days. And I can almost hear Philip's mind clicking through the analysis. Well, let's see. If we use what we have in our money bag and we take up a collection from the crowd, we'll probably get together 200 denarii. And if we buy barley biscuits, because they're the cheapest, we can get 24 barley biscuits for one denarii, and each biscuit's the size of the palm of your hand. That's 4,800 barley biscuits. Even if we break them in half, that's only 9,600 people who get half a biscuit. That's not nearly enough. So he calculates the whole deal. And so he says, Lord, I figured it out and it can't be done. You know what we can learn about Philip? That despite his past exposure to Jesus' miracles, it never entered his mind that Jesus had supernatural creative power. He had apparently forgotten about the miracle of changing the water into wine. Or if he did remember, he considered that to be a mere transformation of an equal amount of water into an equal amount of wine. The idea of creating more food than what actually existed never had never actually crossed his mind. He just calculated the economic aspects of the issue. He was analytical. He was pragmatic. He was a bean counter. Uh, he was one of the, if he was on the board of most churches today, he would be the guy sitting there analyzing the data saying, nope, it can't be done. We don't have the money. He, he was the accountant in the group. The guy for whom the arithmetic did away with any sense of adventure. He was so stuck on facts and figures, he missed faith in the Lord altogether. Someone has said that the supreme essential of a great leader is a sense of the possible. 
However, Philip, as well as most believers, only had a sense of the impossible. Uh, he did not yet understand that with God all things are possible. Uh, so Jesus was trying to teach him about faith, and he was so thick-headed he wasn't learning the lesson. After watching Jesus heal every kind of disease all day long, what he should have said was, Lord, you made wine back at Cana. You still the storm on the sea. Why should we bother to try to buy food? You fed the people of Israel in the wilderness, so now you can feed this crowd. But Philip looks at the situation and says, it can't be done, Lord. And he missed his opportunity to recognize who it was who was asking him the question of what to do. Philip was a man of practical common sense. He was methodical and analytical, but he had very little understanding of the supernatural. He was a facts and figures guy, always going by what appeared rational on the human level. We'll see if he improves any in six chapters. Turn over to John 12. Let's start at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These are God-fearing Greeks who'd come to Jerusalem for the Passover. They were most likely proselyte converts to Judaism. And while they were there, they heard about Jesus. Verse 21 says, These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, Sir, we wish, saying, we wish to see Jesus. Now, as I said before, they probably approached Philip because he had a Greek name and may have spoken fluent Greek. Now, Philip may have been a very approachable, warm-hearted fellow. But notice this. He didn't take him to Jesus. Instead, who does he take him to? Andrew. In effect, he says, I'm not sure this can happen, so let me check with another one of the disciples who's closer to Jesus than I am. Now, before you think, well, he remembered that Jesus said they're not to go to the Gentiles but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, so he wasn't certain Jesus would be willing to see them. Remember this, he had seen Jesus heal a Gentile centurion's child, slave boy, and had accepted the Samaritans who came to him for salvation after the woman of the well shared about meeting the Messiah with them. And yet now he seems to be uncertain about whether or not it's okay to introduce these guys to Jesus. So he takes them to Andrew, and together they go to Jesus. You know what we learn about Philip? He's not decisive. He's not uh, forceful. He wanted to make sure every box was checked. And if he wasn't certain, he got someone else to verify that it was okay before he took action. So he thinks, these guys are Gentiles. You know, it doesn't say in our Constitution or bylaws it's okay to bring the Gentiles. Um, you see, he had no sense of the bigger vision. He didn't get the message of grace. Yes, Jesus came as the Messiah to Israel, but he also said back in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. But Philip didn't seem to remember that. He's, he's still analyzing everything and going by the book. Well, we see him again in John 14. John 14. And folks, frankly, it isn't better. In fact, it's worse. <coughs> It's three years later. The setting is the Passover meal on the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And in verse 7, Jesus tells the disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. 
From now on, you know him and have seen him. And then what does Philip say to Jesus in response? He says, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus' words just drip with disappointment as he says to Philip in verse 9, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Well, this guy is really a spiritual klutz. His spiritual vision is nil. Everything is superficial with him. Unless he can see the specific details, crunch the numbers, analyze all the potential outcomes, he can't see it. Jesus then asked him, verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. In other words, Philip, haven't my words and my works told you something? If you can't see that I'm in the Father, at least believe because of all my miracles. What puny faith, what dull spiritual character. For three years, Philip has gazed into the only face of God that men ever saw, and yet he still doesn't know who he is. Philip was not the Phi Beta Kappa member of the disciples. But isn't it wonderful that God uses those kind of people? Aren't you thrilled? I certainly am, because I can, frankly, I'll be honest with you, I can be a lot like Philip. I mean, I can get so hung up on the rules and regulations and the budget numbers and the potential difficulties that I miss the opportunity to exercise faith and trust in God to take care of me or the church and to provide for us. Philip was no genius. He didn't get lesson number one, that Jesus is God. Three years and hundreds, if not thousands of miracles, but he didn't get it. He needs to be in remedial class. He was a man of limited ability, inadequate faith, imperfect understanding, a man who mulled over all the numbers in his head instead of meditating on who it was he was following. Here was a pessimistic, reluctant, insecure, unsure, analytical man who saw facts and figures and missed the big picture of power and grace. His faith was limited by money, circumstances, and proof. But do you know something? One day he's going to rule over one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Because Jesus transformed him. After Christ's ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower him for service, church tradition says Philip became a missionary to Scythia, which is modern-day southern Ukraine and southern Russia, uh, Phrygia, which is modern-day Turkey, in modern-day Turkey, and Syria. And like all the apostles except John, he died a martyr's death. It's hard to say exactly how because there are various stories of how that happened. One says he was stripped naked and hung upside down by his feet, and then his ankles and thighs were pierced with sharp, uh, sharp stakes so that he slowly bled to death. Uh, another says he was crucified upside down and that he requested that when he died that his body not be wrapped in linen because he didn't consider himself worthy to be buried in the same manner as Jesus. But aren't you glad that God uses those who are slow to grasp the truth? Uh, those who are characterized by puny faith at times. Those who are 
analytical, skeptical bean counters. Some of us are just like that. But if God can transform and use Philip, he can do the same with us. We just have to let the Holy Spirit control us and teach us to trust his guidance as we serve our Lord and King. Let's pause. Any questions or comments on Philip? Yes. I was thinking it's interesting that he's the leader of the second group. Yeah. 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 Well, the next disciple we meet is Bartholomew. Technically, that's his last name. Uh, it means son of Tolmai. Uh, he was always called Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels. But John calls him by his first name, Nathaniel. He was Nathaniel Bartholomew, uh, just as Simon was Simon Barjona. Uh, the name Nathaniel means gift of God. Uh, according to John 21.2, he was from the little t village of Cana in Galilee. Why is that famous in New Testament? The first miracle, the first miracle was at Cana, the turning of water into wine. Nathaniel was brought to Jesus by his friend Philip, so he was probably acquainted with most of the disciples. There's only one passage that tells us about an interaction with Nathaniel. It's found in John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. So let's take a look at it. John 1, beginning at verse 43. It says, the next day he, that's Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee, found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. And then verse 45 says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Just as an aside, notice that Philip referred to Jesus as the son of Joseph. In Hebrew Aramaic, that would have been Bar Joseph. That was, in that society, that would have been Jesus' last name. Just as Nathaniel's last name was Bartholomew. He was Jesus, it was Jesus bar Joseph. Now, what does this account of Philip telling Nathaniel about Jesus tell us? Well, it implies, first of all, that Nathaniel was a searcher of Scripture, a seeker of divine truth. It tells us that Nathaniel knew Messianic prophecy and studied it because of the way that Philip approached him. He says, here's the one the Scriptures told us about. The implication is that Nathaniel was a student of scripture. A further implication is that Philip and Nathaniel are probably spent hours studying the Old Testament together as they're looking for the Messiah. So the first thing we learn about Nathaniel is that he's a student of scripture, a searcher for truth, a seeker for God, and that's the good part about him like it was about Philip. But verse 46 tells us he had a skepticism about him that created a weakness in him. He's affected by prejudice. Look at verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In other words, Philip, you got to be kidding. Nazareth? That's just as Hicksville as you can find in the backwoods of Galilee. Now, Nathanael wasn't from the fanciest place in Galilee himself. Cana wasn't all that big. But in his mind, it was a classier place than Nazareth. Nazareth was unrefined, a very tiny town of uneducated hicks. Uh, probably no more than 150 people in the entire place. It's down in southern Galilee, not far from the border with Samaria. 
Uh, so it was the last stop before the Gentile world. It was sort of out on the fringe of Galilee. In fact, it isn't even an attractive area. Uh, it's full of rocks and shrub bushes. There's no lush green grass or farmland around Nazareth like there is in other places in Galilee. Uh, so it wasn't even considered a favorable place to live in. It was the bad side of Galilee, the wrong side of the tracks in Galilee. Nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. So a sense of prejudice and superiority had built up in Nathaniel's heart, and his response to Andrew revealed that he harbored bias and prejudice against the people from the town of Nazareth. He just blanketed the whole town of Nazareth and said, nothing good's ever going to come out of there. You know, I, I've heard similar comments from people about certain states in our own country that are considered to be backwards and filled with uneducated people. Uh, places like West Virginia with all of its coal mines and, and uh, poor people. Mississippi, Mississippi, which economically is the poorest state in our nation. I've heard people make jokes about those places, those states. They become the target of their jokes who feel that the people in the state that they're from, uh, is, are, the people there are so much classier and so much more intelligent than those people from West Virginia or Mississippi. I'm just as guilty. I've told you before that when we were hiring Joe Trofelmuck and I heard he was from Perry, Florida, a rural logging town in Taylor County in North Florida, my first response was, what, can anything good come out of Perry? Yeah. Boy, was I wrong about that. My sinful attitude of superiority came through. Prejudice has stopped a lot of folks from hearing the truth, hasn't it? It prevented the scribes and Pharisees from responding to Jesus. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He wasn't trained in their rabbinical schools. And in Acts 4.13, they looked at Peter and John and recognized them to be uneducated and untrained men. And they were amazed. They thought these guys are ignorant, unlearned Galileans, hayseeds from the north who haven't been correctly educated. Liberals say the same things about us today. I know when I was in seminary, I ran into a guy who looked down his nose at my theological training because I wasn't going to one of the seminaries that he considered to be prestigious, like Harvard or Princeton or Duke or Emory. Of course, all those seminaries are liberal seminaries. But that is a pattern among the liberals. Their prejudice against Anyone who doesn't march in lockstep with them becomes Satan's device to bind them, uh, to blind them to the truth. And it caused the Jewish nation to remain deaf to the appeal of their own Messiah. So Nathaniel demonstrated prejudice, but his prejudice wasn't so deep and blinding that he wasn't willing to listen. Uh, so at the end of verse 46, Philip tells him, come and see. And off they went to see Jesus. If he had been really committed to his prejudice, he would have said, forget it, I'm not going to go off to see some hayseed from Hicksville. But he's got the kind of prejudice that can be overcome. And he's going to respond, and he did. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, 
Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Here Nathanael is. He's walking up to see this supposed Messiah from Nazareth. And the guy looks at him and says, look here. This guy is a real Israelite in whom there's no hypocrisy. What an introduction to Jesus. What's Jesus saying? What is an Israelite indeed? I, I mean, you're either a Jew or you're not, right? Uh, the word translated indeed means true or real. Jesus called him a true Jew, a true Israelite. You mean someone can be a Jew and not a true Jew? That's right. Can be an Israelite and not a genuine Israelite? That's right. How's it possible? Romans 2.29. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. Romans 9.6 says, For they are not all Israel who were descended from Israel. There are Jews in the flesh who are not Jews in the covenant because they do not believe. But here was a true Jew, a God-fearing, Messiah-seeking Jew, a true Jew. And he said of him, in whom there is no deceit. He was an honest, sincere Jew who was seeking God and there was nothing phony about him. He was a genuine Jew, a genuine person. He had no deceit or duplicity, no hypocrisy or phoniness. That characteristic alone set him apart from most of his countrymen, especially the hypocritical, self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. But even a man that good was still stained with the sin of prejudice. So you see, the Lord is always working with the unqualified at some point or another, even the best of them. His heart was right. His commitment was to the truth of God. He didn't have any deceit or hypocrisy in his life. And Jesus told him that as he approached Jesus. What a great introduction. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if Jesus walked up to you and said, ah, a true Christian who's without hypocrisy. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? I mean, Nathaniel must have been a terrific guy. In order to see how genuine and sincere he really was, look at verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That blew his mind. He suddenly realized this man Jesus was more than just an ordinary man because this man knew where he was without being told. Now you might wonder, well, what was he doing under a fig tree? Did people get under fig trees? I mean, what's, what do you do under a fig tree besides pick figs? Well, basically in Israel during biblical times, fig trees were not only planted in groves to be harvested as a crop, but they were also planted near homes to provide shade and comfort and a place to rest and relax on a hot day. Uh, a fig tree is a relatively short tree in terms of its height. It only grows to a height of about 15 to 20 feet, but they tend to grow much wider than they are tall. Uh, it, a fig tree that's only 15, 20 feet tall can spread out its branches for 25 to 30 feet in each side, in all directions. Uh, so it provides a very large area for shade. And as you know, it's very hot in the Middle East, so if you had a fig tree by your house, it was a wonderful place to find shade and comfort from heat. So during hot weather, many Jews would take the shade of a fig tree as a place to relax and rest, but also as a place to sit and study the scriptures and pray. So it may have been that Nathaniel was out under the fig tree meditating on the Torah and praying. 
And Jesus says to him, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And in that instant, Nathaniel realizes that this guy Philip told him about is omniscient. And only one person is omniscient. So this must be the Messiah. And so look at his response in verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now think about this. After three years, Philip still wasn't sure that Jesus was God. Nathaniel recognized it immediately. He saw deity in his presence. And then verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Now, I don't believe Jesus' statement should be translated as a question. The Greek language clearly allows for a choice to translate it as a statement of fact or, or a question. And I, I agree with the NIV. It translates it, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. Uh, Jesus was saying, Nathaniel, the reason you believe is because you recognize my omniscience. But listen, you're going to see greater things than that, my friend. You have only begun to see life. Nathaniel's gobsmacked by one little demonstration of Jesus' omniscience. And Jesus says, you haven't seen anything yet. And then look at verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God descending, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details about this, but I'll give you just a taste. If you want the whole shebang, I recommend you get the sermon I gave over 16 years ago, way back in 2006, titled Jesus Our Bethel. Um, I checked, it's still available on our website, but I'll give you just a taste of what's happening here. What is this? If you go back to Genesis 28, 10 to 19, you'll find that story of Jacob sleeping and seeing a dream about a ladder that went between heaven and earth. And you need to understand it wasn't a ladder like we think of, but rather like a staircase. Uh, the Hebrew word was used interchangeably to refer to both a ladder and a staircase. So this was a huge staircase that stretched up from earth into heaven. And in Jacob's dream, there were angels going up and down on the staircase. And then Yahweh stood at the top and spoke and reiterated the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. And when Jacob awoke, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And then it, and then it says this, he called the name of that place Bethel. Uh, in Hebrew, the word bet means house and the word El means God. So he's naming it the house of God. Now we come, or the, the gate, you could say, it's the house of God. So now we come back to the text here in John 1, and Jesus says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, you saw my omniscience and recognized my divine power, but from here on you're going to see heavenly things happening all the time through me, and you're going to recognize me as the house of God, the Bethel. It's going to be as if you see heaven opened up and angels going up and down because you're going to see the Son of Man working in response to heavenly power. You're going to be exposed to heaven come down to earth. That's what Jesus is saying to him. 
Jesus wasn't saying that Nathanael was going to see real angels going up and down, but rather just like Jacob recognized that he was in the presence of God, Nathanael was going to see that Jesus was the house of God in human flesh. He is our Bethel. And that's what happened. Jesus performed miracle after miracle, and I like to think that Nathanael understood the glory of God better than any of the other disciples. Why do I say that? Because he never asked another question. He never questions Jesus at any time in the scriptures. He never even appears the rest of the time in the whole account. He was like solid as a rock from the beginning. So we meet Nathaniel Bartholomew, a seeker of truth, who was prejudiced but not bound by it. Honest, open, a man who made a complete surrender to Christ. He saw and he understood. And Jesus promised to him the most wonderful revelations and everything he saw from then on he knew was heaven opened up to man through the person of Jesus Christ. Tradition tells us that Nathaniel died a martyr's death. By various accounts, he apparently ministered in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, uh, India, and Armenia. One tradition tells us that he died by being tied up in a sack and cast into the sea. Another, another says he was skinned alive and then crucified upside down. That would certainly have been a horrible way to die, but we, we can't be certain exactly how he died. But what we do know is that Nathaniel was faithful to the end because he was faithful from the start. Everything he experienced with Christ and whatever he experienced after the birth of the New Testament church ultimately made his faith stronger. And like the other apostles, he stands as proof that God can take the most common people from the most insignificant places and use them to his glory. Aren't you glad about that? Well, our time, we've reached a point we need to stop. The, uh, we'll stop and we'll pick up with Thomas next week. Any questions or comments on Nathaniel Bartholomew? No, he, Nathaniel, or yeah, Philip, he was the first one that Jesus made a direct call to, to follow me. The others, John the Baptist told Andrew and John, behold the Lamb of God, and they started following him. And then Andrew went and got Peter, John went and got James. But the first one that Jesus directly himself told to follow me was... Anything else? Okay. Frank, would you be so kind as to close us?